Hey, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 32. Um, if you're just joining us, you weren't here last Sunday, we began kind of this three-part sermon series before we pick up Acts again, um, looking at this very famous story of a man named Jacob wrestling with, with this mysterious figure who, who we, at the end, find out is God. Um, uh, what I want to do, because it's going to be kind of a three-parter, <laughs> What I want to do is, I mean, we'll go as far as I sort of feel like it and as much as you could handle this morning, okay? And then we'll pick it up next week. Um, for those people that weren't here this Sunday, I really want them to be here because next week sort of, you know, lacks its punch if you miss out on what we talked about, as a lot of sermon series tend to be. Um, so uh, before we jump in, I, I want to tell you, I'm going to read you an article in a moment. Where is this article? Preaching 101 is have your articles ready that you want to read, okay? So here we go. Uh, I, I want to read you an article here in a moment. But um, part of the genesis sort of for me looking at this passage in this sermon series, I told you last week, was reading a small little book called Daring to Draw Near by a guy named John White who kind of portrayed this text in a way that I, I had never seen before. And I'll mention that in a moment. But the other is just multiple conversations with people, Christians and non, about God. Did you have those? You guys have those conversations with people about God? And what's interesting to me is that there seems to be, and this isn't news, an interest in God, interest in encountering God, knowing this God. And, 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 and that's all good and dandy uh, because in some ways the Bible actually it, it has, has that as a central thrust, central theme. How does humanity, how sinful humanity approach draw near to a holy, perfect God? You know, the Bible addresses that. The problem is, of course, of what we think about God, who we think God is, and what we think God is like. And the problem, especially for us in our culture, is that the notion of God, our picture of who God is, boy, is just wacky. Can I just say that? It's just wacky. I mean, uh, I mentioned this last week. Christians were especially influenced by this. Uh, uh, Christian Smith is a guy who came up with the terminology moralistic therapeutic deism as how Christians sort of approach God. And here's what moralistic therapeutic deism is. It's a fancy word, basically, that says, when we think about God, here's how we think about God. We think that God exists. By the way, he's some distant deity out there who's not really involved in our daily affairs. And by the way, you, we in our culture sort of euphemistically refer to him as, you know, stuff like the man upstairs. I mean, that, that should give you a picture of what we think about the man upstairs, you know. So here's this distant deity, God figure out there, and he exists to give us benefits, therapeutic benefits, successful life, good life, happy life, in exchange for us being good, moral, acting right, obeying the Ten Commandments, etc. The problem with that is when you look at the Bible, the Bible portrays God as how? C.S. Lewis, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? But he's good, I tell you. God is not safe, folks. God is an untamed God. He's dangerous. And drawing near to him, oh boy, it's dangerous. Drawing near to this God, encountering him, is dangerous. This passage that we're going to look at tells us it's a fight. It's an intense wrestling to encounter this God. And here's the other thing, too. When you encounter this God... Um, he wrecks your life. 
I know I say that and people go, what? Especially non-Christians. He wrecks my life. But can I just, Christians, just, you don't have to say anything. How many of you guys could sit here this, this morning and say, when you truly encounter the God, not as I want him to be, as he is, yeah, my life sort of felt like it was being wrecked. Anybody? <laughs> um, I'm actually not going to read this article. We're just going to jump into this text, okay? Uh, maybe to, to last week. Actually, the whole article is about how our culture, we struggle with God because we think God is morally inferior than us. And, and we judge him. And, and I want to show you from today's text of what it's like to encounter this God who says, I'm a wrestler. An encounter with me is intense wrestling. Okay, Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took two, his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Verse 23, after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left all alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I shared this last week. The key, one of the keys to understanding this text is for you to realize that Jacob is not the aggressor in this text. Jacob is not the one that's saying, God, I want to wrestle you. I need to wrestle you. And how we've been taught, I need to wrestle you and wrestle with you to get this blessing that I long for. And you don't want to give it to me, so I'm going to persevere in prayer. I'm going to wrestle. And and we have, you know, these moralistic lessons like, have you wrestled with God lately? Have you persevered in prayer? Read the text. Jacob is in there minding his own business. And God comes and says, son, we're going to wrestle tonight. Jacob is not the aggressor. He's not engaging in this wrestling match with God because he wants to. He's engaging in this wrestling match with God because he's forced to. And the amazing thing is, of course, the story ends with Jacob being victorious, which is the gospel. It's so beautiful. I'll talk about this in the end. Okay, so when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled, struggled with God and with men and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. It's one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture. It's a story in which this man, Jacob, wrestles and is in wrestling match with God, but he walks away changed. He walks away transformed, by the way, with the limp, with, 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 the, with the severe limp, um, um, which gets to a principle we'll talk about next week. How do you know you've genuinely encountered with God? You, ha- you have a limp about you. That's how you know. 
And we'll talk about that, I think, uh, next week. Uh, But Jacob wrestles with God. And Jacob goes into this thing thinking that he knows what the main problem in his life is. Like many of us, we think we know what the main problem in our life is and how to go about dealing with that problem. And then God shows up and God sheds some light and says, that ain't your main problem. That is not the main problem in your life. And Jacob, Jacob learns that the main problem in his life, the thing that he thinks is the issue in his life to overcome, God sheds light and says, that's not the real issue in your life. And he realizes that, and he changes his basic life strategy, and his life is transformed. This text, more than any other, answers this question, how do we have an encounter with God? Not just know about this God in a general way, but encounter, a life-changing encounter with God. we give you a brief text, and then we'll jump in. Up to this point, Jacob's life has been essentially him living up to his name. What does name Jacob mean? Do you remember? Remember? His name literally means wrestler, supplanter, deceiver. His name literally means one who deceives in order to sort of get he wants. That's what his name literally means. And Jacob's entire life has been about Jacob wrestling, deceiving, manipulating, so on and so forth, for the blessing, for the inheritance, for the birthright. That as we saw last week, God promised Jacob he would have anyway. But because Jacob doesn't trust God and God's sovereign hand and forgot to work, Jacob takes matters into his own hands and he tries to force sort of his life to happen. Result, uh, 21 years of anxiety. Here's what happens where we're at today. It's been 21 years. Jacob has fled his homeland. He has fled his family. He has fled everything that he loves, everything that he wants, because he takes it in his own hands. And now he's in the process of coming back home. And as he's coming back home, he hears that his brother Esau is coming at him with 400 men. Jacob was sort of hoping that it would be, you know, kind of a gentle, nice conversation to settle the issue about how he lied and deceived his brother. But his brother seemingly wants nothing to do with that. He's coming at him with 400 men. So here's Jacob living up his name again. Here's what he does. He gathers all his family. He has all of his livestock. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to separate my family and livestock. And I'm going to send them in waves along with my servants to Esau. So as Esau's coming, he sees part of the family for Jacob and part of the blessings. And he's lavishing gifts on him. So that hopefully Esau would go, oh, wow. My brother, my little brother. Well, isn't that, isn't that nice? Oh, you're his daughter, you're his son. And then I, hoping that Esau would be mollified, hoping that Esau would, you know, not be as angry when he meets. It's the night before he is going to now meet Esau. He has sent his entire family ahead of him, okay? And so here's Jacob alone at night. And it makes sense. He wants to be alone. He wants to think. He wants to reflect on his life. He wants to think about where he's been. He wants to think about what he's done. And it is when he is alone with God that he has this life-transforming encounter. Which we get our first principle from. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Because I'm going to come and sort of support this from text. First principle we see in this text, and it's it's kind of a small one, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I want to get to the wrestling, is that if you want to have a life-transforming encounter with God, you have to meet God alone. You have to meet God alone personally, not in groups. Verse 24, where do we get that? What I've just said, 
what I've just said, and I know some of you guys are sitting there going, doesn't that contradict everything that you say, Peter, around here and everything that David constantly harps on, which is community, community, community. We need community. We can't do this Christian life alone. And in no way am I contradicting what we affirm here, which is that when you become a Christian, you become joined to a part of a community, part of a body of Christ. And that community is absolutely essential, absolutely critical for you in your growth and for your vitality and faith. We absolutely in our church want to go against the grain of and hyper-individualize the approach to faith, which just says, me and God alone, and I don't need anybody else. Here's what I'm talking about. The Bible absolutely says the hyper-individualized me and myself alone, I don't need anybody else, is unbiblical and recognize community is important. However, what the Bible affirms over and over again, though, is a intimate, personal faith. Jesus in the Gospels modeled this beautifully. How many times you read the Gospels, you come across passages like in the book of Luke, and when he withdrew to a lonely place by himself. Or in the book of Mark, and when he was alone. And then he, of course, comes to us and says, you want to encounter God? Here's what I want you to do. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your heavenly Father who is in heaven. You want to meet God? You've got to meet him in the closet. Why, why, is, why is that important? Um, <laughs> I have a perspective that many of you uh, may not because I'm a pastor. Here's what I hear a lot, okay? I have folks in college, college students, shout out. I have a lot of college students who are struggling with their faith. They come to me. Here's what they say. Here's, here's what they say. They say, Pastor Pete, I was really involved in youth group. Oh, man, I was involved. You know, I was a youth group leader. I went to these retreats. I went to these youth, you know, gatherings. And, and I read the Bible. And I was with all these friends. And God was, was real. And he was powerful. And then I went off to college. And, and I tried joining that fellowship, that fellowship. And, and, and you know, it, but it just didn't click. And I just kind of lost all desire to pray, read the Bible, be in, be in community with believers. And I just kind of drifted away. Okay, here's another example. College students who are now young adults. Pastor Peter, when I was in college, oh, man, I was part of Indo Varsity, and I was so involved, and, you know, feeling right. I was really involved, and I went to the large group meetings, and went to retreats, and God was just so real. I was with all these people who just loved Jesus, and then I graduated college, and I started working, you know, and I just all of a sudden, this art gone, and no motivation, and I look for a church here and there, but just, it just never really... And here's one more example. I meet some people who are like, oh, I was really struggling. I didn't even know God. And then I met somebody. He brought me to this church. And it was a wonderful church. It was an amazing church. It's called New Community. And it was just had all these people who loved Jesus. And just, I mean, it was just passion. And people just worshiping God. And their hearts were just, just warm towards me. And hearts were warm towards each other. And they were just inspired and filled with hope. And, and, then, and then I moved to another city. And, 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 and all of a sudden, desire gone and just longing to read scripture, be in community. You've tracked some of the examples. Why? Here's the principle. You ready? It is very easy to derive your spirituality from the environment. It is utterly easy to derive your spirituality from your environment. What am I saying? It's easy for you to be a part of a group. You're swept along in a group, and you see people encountering God. They are genuinely encountering God. You see people's lives being changed by God, transformed by God, and that inspires you. That gives you a certain sense of hope. And you're thinking, wow, look at that. God changes lives. God is actually working in people's. But the question is, have you encountered 
Have you personally experienced God or were you just kind of swept along with the environment? It's so easy to think. You come here, see people worship and see people pray saying, wow, this is an awesome place. Wow, look at that. Look, he, he loves Jesus. They're just on fire and they just want to so worship him. Wow, look at that. God is changing him. God is changing her. And you're hearing all these stories in small groups. And for you to think that you actually are personally encountering God, you personally are being transformed and changed by God, when in fact, you just might be, you know, sort of experiencing God via other people's experience of God. Now, now let, me, let, me, let me tell you how we engage this, okay? I don't know about you, but this is true for me. This is one of the reasons why, unless we have something very, very, very important and we're very, very worried about something, after like five or ten minutes with God alone, we don't even know what to say. Anybody relate to that? A gauge and a measure of your personal, personal encounter with God might be when we get along with God, why is it that unless we're extremely worried about something and there's something that's just critical and crucial for us, after five, ten minutes or so, we sit there and go, oh, oh, hmm. Have you encountered him? Now, let me put this in the starkest terms possible, okay? And, and I, again, I, I don't want you to think that, that this is somehow contradicting what we're talking about here. The truth is multidimensional. Truth is sort of, there's, there's different ways of looking at this. Here's what, and I'm going to put it in a way that just makes you go, <gasps> and then I'll come back. The most critical, serious things that you're going to face in life, you're going to face alone. And unless you have the reality of God in you and you have the reality of God with you, you're going to be utterly alone in the universe. Let me give you an example. Give you an example. I've shared this once or twice. I had malaria, was on a mission trip to Africa. I was flown to New York. I was flown to New York, was sort of emergencyed into the intensive care unit where I was for two weeks. Um, nurses and doctors, you guys know, I was in the critical intensive care unit being treated for malaria, right? And here's what happened. I had wonderful friends and wonderful family and wonderful pastors. In, 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 in that moment when I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to live, I don't know if I'm going to die, and just going through all of these things, I had pastors come, they prayed for me, flowers, cards, my friends came along and said, you're not going to be alone. We're here with you. We're here in this together, so on and so forth, right? Uh, at 10 o'clock at night, visiting hours are over. And 10 o'clock at night, my mom, my dad, everybody, 10 o'clock at night until 6 in the morning, guess what? Peter, lying on that bed. And if not for the reality of God in me and the reality of God with me in that moment. Church, you see what I'm saying? It's just a corrective to what we, I think, when we say community, we need to be careful what we're talking about. Absolutely different community. But community, let me give you this example, and then we'll go on. I, I didn't think I was going to share this. We love Paul's letters. We love Paul's epistles. And we know, of course, a lot of his letters were written to churches, right? So we say, they're written to communities of people, so on and so forth. But have you ever thought, think about this, where did Paul write those letters? 
They're called prison epistles because they were written in prison alone. And yet, when you read Paul's letters, you know what comes through? We come to face-to-face with the man for whom the reality of God, the truth of God, the power of God, was so real and so alive that he wrote these amazing letters to churches that would encourage groups of people. These letters that are filled with praise, worship, the reality of the goodness, faithfulness, power of God. Have you encountered God personally? Are you just going along for the ride? Life-changing encounter with God. Yes, absolutely it happens in community, but it also happens personally. Hello. Have you encountered him? Do you know him? Uh, Second thing, and we're going to sort of park here for today, and and we'll see how far we get through, because it is the sort of thing about this text, and that is a life-transforming encounter with God is not just personal, but a life-transforming encounter with God is personal wrestling. It's a fight. Uh, Full disclosure, I got tons of help on this from a pastor who actually was a wrestler. And so they want to give some insight into sort of this text that anybody wrestle? Greco-Roman wrestlers? Yeah? Okay. Okay. So like three of you could like totally relate. And the rest of us are like, what are you talking about? Okay. Personal wrestling. God reveals himself in this passage to be a wrestler. And people who have personally met God and not just had, you know, an environmental experience, religious experience, but actually meet God personally, have wrestled with God. What is it like? Uh, Three quality of wrestling. And and by the way, if I'm way off on this, uh, you can correct me, okay? All right. Three qualities of wrestling that gives a spiritual principle. Number one, uh, by the way, I'm not talking about WWF. I'm not talking about something going up on the ropes and going superplex or whatever the thing is, okay? I'm talking about like legitimate wrestling, you know, two guys in tights, you know, kind of whatever you call those things, right? That's, that's what I'm talking, okay? All right. I actually wanted to bring a clip, you know, for those of you that are going, I have no idea what that's like. So bring a clip. So you just kind of have to, you know, use your imagination. First thing about wrestling is that, that you can't do anything but when you're wrestling, you can't, in other words, utter focus, utter intentionality. Talk to wrestlers, and they're not in a wrestling match, okay? Whatever, okay? They're not sitting there wrestling, and they're thinking, you know, you know, I, I, boy, I haven't gone to a Cubs game lately. Boy, it'd be really nice, you know, you're being slammed under the mat. It'd be nice to go to a Cubs game. Why is this guy on top of me? You're not thinking about anything else, right? Jacob is wrestling, and I'm just reading into this, and I don't think he's in this wrestling match, and he's saying to himself, so when I meet Esau, how should I greet him? Should I say, brother, it's nice to see you. No, I can't say brother. Esau, he's not thinking about anything else. When you're wrestling, it is all-consuming. You're focused. You're in it, and you're thinking about that opponent and thinking about what you're engaged in. Hey. The wrestler says that's true. Number two, second part of wrestling is that both parties contradict the movements of the other. Wrestling. You're contradicting movement. In other words, when a guy grabs you, he's trying to uh, one of these. You're grabbing him, he's trying to want uh, one of these. Because if the guy's trying to uh, one of these, and you also go uh, one of these, that's not wrestling. That's tango. <laughs> right? True? 
Okay, so so far, so when you're wrestling, the whole point of wrestling is you're contradicting the movements of the other. Okay, again, wrestlers, thank you for your help, right? You're not, you're not moving along, because if you're moving along, you're dancing, right? It's tango, it's not wrestling. Okay, so the third, third quality of wrestling is that there's agony. How many of you guys have actually, like, during gym class in high school, like, wrestle? Like, you were forced to because it was part of gym class. Do you remember that? I hated that week. <laughs> Here's the reason why. If you've ever been to a gym and you lift weights, you know what wrestling is like? It's going to the gym and pressing and lifting weights and having the weights press and lift you back. That's what wrestling is like. Okay? It's pressing and lifting and having somebody else, pre- the weights press and lift you back. Now, four or five minutes and top condition athletes you see in the Olympics, the Bible says Jacob wrestled all night, eight hours. Agony. Let's apply this to wrestling with God. What does this mean? Number one. If you're going to wrestle with God, first and foremost, it requires utter focus. It requires utter intentionality. It requires utter sort of centrality of this and this alone. Here's what I'm saying. It's not mentally saying to yourself, God, 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 God. I need to concentrate. God, God. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Let me say the principle, and then I'll come back. What do I mean, utter focus? C.S. Lewis, I think, articulated the best, but before I get to him, when you're wrestling with God, when you're truly in a wrestling match with God, you understand the extremity of alternatives when it comes to God. When you're wrestling with God, you realize the utter extremity of alternatives when it comes to God. Here's what I mean. Let me, let, me, let me go and explain. If you're eventually going to encounter God, you have to deal with this person, Jesus. Because the Bible says that Jesus ultimately reveals who this God was. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus, a lot of people in our culture, Christians included, you grew up in church, religious. When it comes to Jesus, a lot of people are just nonchalant and casual about Jesus. Folks who want to know, you know, Jesus, Christianity, a lot of people, their approach is, yeah, you know, Jesus, I'm kind of thinking about it. I'm kind of interested in this faith. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, there's this nonchalant sort of, yeah, maybe, maybe not about Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this, extreme alternatives. You got to choose. Here's what he said. And I could read this quote every year. Bear with me. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. Jesus claims to forgive sins. He says that he's always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let this get this clear. You have, if you have grasped that, you'll see that what this man said, Jesus, was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying here to prevent anybody saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus, you know, as, as, as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him as God. That's the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be lunatic on a level with the man who says that he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. Look, you got to make your choice. Extremity of alternatives. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You could kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and worship him as Lord and God. But please, let's not come with this patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect. He didn't produce mild, on people that met him. 
He produced three effects. People hated him. People were terrified of him. Or they fell down and worshipped God. There was no trace of people experiencing mild approval. Here's how you know that you're encountering God. There's utter focus and attention. Like, what do I mean? When you begin to encounter God, you realize the utter extremity of alternative when it comes to God. So if Jesus is God, if Jesus really is God, then here's what this means. He is the most important thing in life. He is utterly the most important thing in life. There is no other. His agenda, his priorities, his heart, his will. He is the most important, utter essential focus of my life. Utterly. I don't just have him in my life. He is my life. How do you know you've begun to encounter God? When you begin to encounter God, you begin to see him and saying, there are no other alternatives of mild approval. He is the most important. He is the utmost priority of my life. And here's the other two. If he is not God, then nothing else really matters. You ever think about that? If Jesus is not God, then everything is meaningless. There's nothing that really matters at the end of the day. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is random chance. Random events happening just randomly. Nothing really means. And is that extreme? Is that intense? So here's the thing. So if you don't know Jesus... The way to respond and come to this God is you're saying, I am going to do everything I can to find out who this is and what it means to believe in him. Pascal. Anybody a fan of Pascal? I love some of his writings. And one of the most famous quotes that he said that I love is this. He said, every single one of us has bet our lives that there is a God or there is not a God. We have bet our lives and our eternal destiny. We have committed and we are spending and living our lives as if we believe that he is there and real or we believe that he isn't. So his point is atheism is not irrational. Atheists actually have wrestled with God. They have actually thought things through. You know what is irrational? Someone who says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. Who could really know these things? I'm sorry, but I get really frustrated when somebody comes and says, yeah, you know, Peter, Jesus, God, yeah, I don't know. I, this is kind of nonsense. You know what I mean? I mean, man, God, how do you know the Bible is true? You know, there are no pat answers, and I want to go, that is the most pat answer. That is the most pat answer. I don't know. Who really knows? You can't really know. Think. Don't be lazy. Think. Don't be looks lady. Think. Think about this. Think about it. If he is real, if he is real, that he is the most important thing in my life, we fall down and worship him as God. If he is not, then nothing means anything. Everything in this universe is utterly meaningless. Does that make sense? I feel like, I feel like there's, you know, that Jeopardy music playing in the background. Do, do, do. As you guys are going, what is he talking about <laughs> if, if this makes sense say amen so let me just put it this way okay you know what this means this means that for many of us christians let me talk to you here's how you know if you've encountered god here's how you know if you've encountered god we come to god and we say this we say god take anything from my life as long as i have you 
God, bring anything into my life as long as I have you. All that matters is that I have you. To which if you're sitting there going, that's stupid. That's crazy. Who would say that? That shows that you haven't tasted the reality of it. Because to anyone who has encountered the real God, who has encountered the real God, comes to God and says, God, take anything from my life as long as I have you. Bring anything from my life as long as I have you. Because I know deep in my heart that nothing is worth keeping if I don't have you. And anything is worth losing for you. Nothing is worth keeping if I don't have you. And anything is worth losing for you. Can you say that? Can you pray that? Is that the cry of your heart? Is that the cry of your heart this morning, child of God? If you're encountering the real God... Extremity of alternatives. You are God. That means my life, my soul, my being, my heart, mind, and soul is to love you with all of me. Take anything from my life as long as I have you. Bring anything into my life as long as I have you. All that matters is that I have you. All that matters is that I have Can you say that this morning? Can you say that this morning? Um, During my time away, and I shared this with some of the staff, you know, I I honestly didn't come with like profound insights, you know. I just uh, got real quiet, and I heard the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit come and saying, Peter, it's really simple, isn't it? Loving me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving me with all. God, take anything from me. God, bring anything into my life as long as I have you. Second part of wrestling, not just focus, but it involves contradiction. Contradiction. What do I mean? Anyone who begins to really encounter the real God, you start to ask questions. You ask some pointed questions. And I love this. I love this. You start to ask pointed questions. You know, you start to say things like, God, if you were a good God, why would you let this happen? Why would you let that happen? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? If you are truly encountering God, hopefully this is encouragement to some of you, you start arguing with God. So you're going, no, hell, hell. It's normal. It's natural. It's good. Matter of fact, if you don't have questions and you're not asking questions, Christian, you shut off your brain. Because if you're genuinely encountering God and you're asking questions and you get deeper into knowing God, you're going to have lots of questions. You're going to ask God lots of questions. You're going to battle and wrestle with him. But here's what I want to ask. I've got to be nice and gentle. Here's what I want to ask you. You know, genuine wrestling, if it's contradiction, you go to God and say, God, why? God, why this? Can, can, can God come and say to you, why? 
what, what, what's that? You tracking so far? <laughs> See, this is the voice of it. We're like, I get to question you. I get all these questions. And then God goes, okay, you want a real relationship? Okay, then let me come and go, why do you do that? Why those priorities? Why those values? Why that value? Why are you doing that? In order for the genuine wrestling, again, it's not tango. It's wrestling. And God comes to us and says, okay, you've got questions for me. You ask me all these things? Okay, then I've got questions for you. Why that? Why this? What about that? Does that make sense? Okay. Because I, I thought about this. Okay, so let's take, let's take one of the things that people ask a lot, which is, Peter, why does God, if he's real and if he's alive, why does let evil and suffering still exist in the world? Very good question. I'm not going to get into it today. We talk about it and we address it, but I'm not going to go into that today. We go, God, why does evil and suffering? That was one of the articles. That's how I know you're morally inferior, God. How can you, if you're a good God, let evil and suffering still continue to exist in the world? Very good question. Now, my question to you is this. Can God come and say, okay, those are great questions, but is it possible that if God is real, if God exists, that he could have other thoughts about you, that he could think differently about you? That he would have reasons beyond what you think about why he would let evil and suffering exist in the world. But then how would you know? Because you're saying, I can't trust you. I can't believe in a God who would let all this happen. You've already said, I have a belief system that says, if God doesn't act in X, Y, X, Y, and Z, I can't believe him. I can't worship him. And God comes right along and says, but if you want a real relationship, don't we kind of have to, you know, can I ask you some questions? Is it possible that I would think differently about you in that area? Um, this is one of the reasons why, and I, I've shared this before, you guys. This is one of the reasons why I think one of the most sort of rampant things in our culture is, is, is that people have their own made-up image about who God is and what God is like. Uh, this is the reasons why we live in a culture uh, that's me-centered, self-centered, and we, we want God to be who we are. And so when people say things like, I don't believe in a God, I ask them, I go, why do you believe that about God? And a lot of the times the answer I get is because I want to believe that that's how God is. And here's the problem with that. Just two things real quick, and then, and then I don't know if I'm going to get to the third part of wrestling, but two things real quick. I want to just, one is this, one is this, okay? One is this, how is that God ever going to change us? If we have a God that we've made up in our own mind, made up in our own image, how is that God going to change us when that God is somebody that we've made up in our mind? The God is a product of our mind. God is a product of how we want God to be. How would that God ever come and change us? So let me give you an example. You know somebody who struggles with a deep sense of self-worth and self-esteem. Somebody really struggles with sense of, sense of, sense of worth, sense of esteem. Somebody who, is, who, who, who feels condemned all the time. And my question is, what is going to change that person from someone who feels worthless and feels guilty, low self-esteem, to be a person of strength, to be a person of poise, to be a person of joy? A God that he has made up in his mind, a God who is, he's made up in his mind that says, well, this is who I think God is. Can God, can that God come and transform and change that heart to be a person of poise? Because here's the scripture's answer to that. 1 John chapter 3.19. It says, this is then how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Check this out. John is saying, this is how we know. Whenever hearts condemn us, whenever, whenever lies come in and say, you're worthless, you're guilty, you can't be forgiven. He says, this is how we know. And we have set our hearts at rest. He says, for God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. 
If your God, if our God is a product of our imagination, if our God is a product of our mind, a product of our heart, how is that God who's a product of our hearts come and silence the voice in our hearts that says, you're condemned, you're guilty, you can't be forgiven if we've made up in our hearts? The only God that can come in and transform and change us is a God, as the scripture says, who's greater than our hearts, who's not the product of our hearts, who could come into us and say, you're not guilty, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're my child. A God who's a product of our hearts and God we've made up. I want you to be like that. That may solve some problems and you don't have to really think about these things about God that makes you uncomfortable, but that God will never change us because he's a product of our hearts. And I've said this before, church. Let me just say it real succinctly. Move on. You'll never be changed. If there's some things that God can't tell you that you don't like, that you don't agree with, your heart will be never changed when he comes and tells you things that you utterly can't help believe like he loves you, like he cares for you, like he's your God and you're his. The other thing about, let me just say this and then we'll move on about this, about relationships and contradiction is, you know, as a pastor, I get a, I get a lot of married couples who come into my office for counseling. And, and what's funny is, is uh, that, 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 that they're discovering what a real marriage and real relationship is for the first time. And, you know, a lot of times, here's what happens. Couples come in. I say, what's the problem? They, ah! they both talk. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop, stop, stop. Hold on. Hold on. Let's be civil. We can talk, right? And a lot of times, it's, it's uncanny. Here's what's happening. The one person, let's take the wife, you know, for this example, has had issues with the marriage and with the husband all the time, right? The whole time. But she's repressed it. She's never said anything, you know? She just holds it in. Doesn't say anything, right? So for the first time, she's actually speaking up. Right? She's actually speaking up. In other words, it's actually a real relationship. And the husband's like, whoa, what's this? Oh my gosh, our marriage is in trouble. And so they come in and he's like, our marriage is in trouble. And I listen, I listen, I listen. And then I finally figure out, oh, wait, wait, wait. Is your marriage in trouble or, or is your wife actually speaking up and like speaking her mind and she's being true to who she is? And the wife was over there going, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the husband's over there going, I don't like this marriage. I liked you much better when, you know, you didn't argue. I liked you much better when you didn't, you know, like have differences. I liked you much better when you didn't disagree. To which I look at him and I go, is that a marriage? Is that a real relationship? So guy, guy, just general. So what you're looking for is Stepford wife, right? Someone who says, yes, dear. What would you like me to do, dear? Yes, dear. I would like to. Okay, you want me to do that for you? Yes, dear. That's what you want. And I say to him, is that a real relationship or is that imagination, a relationship of imagination? Why is it any different with God? If you want a real relationship with God, you go to the Bible and you find out. Here's the thing. As soon as you go to the Bible, start reading, you go, oh, I don't like that. Oh, uh, I don't like that. Why does he say that? I totally disagree with that. That just seems backwards. That's ancient. Who would think that? We have all these differences. And we go, God, I just will take things about you that I like, and I will not take the things that I don't like, and that'll be our relationship. And God comes along and says, how is that a real relationship? Where you can say, well, here are things I don't like about you, but I can't come to you and go, here are things I don't like about you. Amen? If 
feel like I'm in a philosophy class this morning. This is what you're thinking. I feel like I'm in a philosophy class this morning. Is this church a philosophy class? Listen, let me just put it in one and then we'll move on. You want a real relationship with God? Here's the deal. You want a real, genuine relationship with God? Here's the deal. Can God come to you and say, here's some things about you that I want you to change. Here's some things about you that I need you to change. And unless you're willing to wrestle in that and figure that out with God, you don't have a genuine relationship. You have a relationship of your imagination, a God of your imagination. And that God will never change you. He'll never change you. And you'll never be changed. You'll never be transformed. Oh, you may walk around and go, and I have, whoo, I have no, you know, I'm feeling good inside, and there are no people that are wrestling with God, and you want to be changed? Christians are walking around going, oh, God, he's picking on that in my life. Oh, he's picking on that in my life. Oh, but I know this is real. I know, I know, I know this is real. People are walking around going, oh, yeah, God and me, we're good. We're like this. <laughs> Should I go on or should I stop here? You really? Paul, I think a lot of people are going, just stop, just stop. <laughs> just stop. Just kill it right now. Just kill it right now. Okay, I need to go on. Is that okay? Okay, third part. This is the most important, actually. Genuine encounter with God involves agony. And this is the scariest and this is the most uh, part. That's why I was like hesitating. Yeah, your pastor is a big old chicken today. I'm sitting going, oh, I don't want to say this because it's going to offend people. It's going to offend their sensibilities about God. Well, I think I've done a good job of that already, so I might as well go on. When we come to this chapter, when we come to this passage, here's what's been going on. Jacob is actually doing right. Jacob is actually doing things right. Why is Jacob here this night? Why is Jacob here? When you read Genesis 31 and 32, he hears that Esau is coming, and he has, he has every reason to believe that Esau is going to kill him. He has every reason to believe that his life is over. But Jacob is there, and he's, he, he's actually going to meet Esau. Why? When you read Genesis 31 too, you know why he's there? God tells Jacob. God says, Jacob, I want you to go back to your homeland. So Jacob has every opportunity to say, God, I'm done here, and I'm going to go back. I'm done here, and I'm just going to. But Jacob stays, and he continues. Why? He's obeying God. Hello? He's obeying God. He's listening to God. Secondly, (laughs) Jacob is praying. It's a beautiful prayer, by the way, in verses 9 through 11 in Genesis 32. He's actually praying. It's a sincere prayer. It's a genuine prayer. He is praying to God. Now, let me ask you something. Um, in, In what you typically think of church and religion and God, how does God respond to somebody who is obeying God at the risk of his life and who is praying and seeking God? How does God treat him? This passage, God says, I clobber you. God says, I hit you. God says, I maim you. And God says, you walk away with the limp. And that's where we'll end today, and we'll come back. No. (laughs) This passage 
totally, totally blows our minds about how we, many of us who grew up in church, think about religion and church. Because in religion and church, we say things like, if you obey God and you obey God to all of your heart, soul, and mind, you'll never lose your job. If you obey God and you follow all of your heart, you'll find somebody who's the love of your life and you'll never be alone. If you obey God and you do all the right things and you obey, then God will bless you. That's what we hear in church. We don't hear that if you obey God to your moral peril and you pray and seek God's heart, that God comes and clobbers you. God comes and knocks you down. God comes and makes you walk away with the limb. We say, God, if we obey, we follow him with all of our heart, then he will bless us. To which I want to say, how do you explain the cross? How do you explain what happened to the best man who ever lived, who did it perfectly right? And he got this. I'm not saying it's easy to figure out. Just think for a moment. How, how do you explain the typical religious approach that says, if you do things right and obey God and don't, then God will bless you. How do you explain this? Here's how I explain it. By the way, first of all, you're sitting there going, who the heck would put this stuff in the Bible? Why is this in here? You know why it's in here? Because it happened. What kind of an idiot would go, you know, I think I'm going to put something in the Bible that modern people in 2009 sitting in Chicago will go, that kind of a God, I like him. He makes sense. Because if you're being really honest, deep down inside, many of us are going, oh, God does what? God does what to somebody who in our minds thinks God would respond totally? Why is this in here? Because it happened. Now, the answer question that we need to ask the answer to is why is this in here? And what does it teach us about God? And what does it teach us about how God responds to people who seek him? Here's what this teaches. We're doing spiritual surgery right here, and I need to be very careful. Very careful. Because when we're doing spiritual surgery, you can't, you, can't, you can't go to the left, too far to the left, or too far to the right, because then you kill them. you got to go straight down the middle. We're doing spiritual surgery here. So here's what I want to say. Because every time the topic of pain and, and, and suffering and hardship come in, I know there's a, there's a variety of responses. People out there going, this is what I think. But let me, let me tell you what Scripture says, and then we're going to dig into this passage. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says, Genesis, John chapter 11, most beautiful picture. When it comes to pain, suffering, and hardships, first and foremost, Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, who's dead. He's, and Jesus sees the death, the decay, and the disease, and the sin. And Jesus, Jesus has the audacity to say to his disciples, this will result in greater glory for me. He says, this death will not end and utterly nothing. This then will result in greater glory, greater honor for me. I have wonderful purposes for it. The Bible absolutely affirms, you guys, that pain, hardships, and suffering that we experience, the Bible is absolutely unflinching in saying that whether it be because of our own sins and what we do, and, or, this is hard, when it's because of sins of others to us, Whatever the cause of suffering, God somehow in his economy says, the pain, the suffering, and hardships I am going to use for greater good absolutely affirms that. But the other thing about John 11 that I love is Jesus is not cold and calculating about it. He sees the sin death and he weeps. He weeps. 
He's angry at the tomb. He's angry at the disease. He's angry at the sin. He's angry at the death. And he weeps and he says, he says, this was not my intention. This is not what I intended creation for. And he weeps. And what the Bible says is when it comes to pain, suffering, and hardships, and when it comes to those things we experience, God is not calculating about it. God's not remote from it. God isn't just up there going, well, I'm God, and you're just going to experience it. Because what God says is he's involved. He is intimately involved, and he weeps, and he feels he's there. He's there. And furthermore, God says, to end it, ultimately, I'm going to send my son who will die to end suffering once and for all. He will suffer to end suffering once and for all. That's what God says. Having said that, what does this Jacob passage teach us? And this is something I want you to really... I want you to think about what you wrestle with as we come back next week. When it comes to a transformed life, when it comes to God working in us and transformed life, it is often God's way that God wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into one. This passage, more than any other passage in the text, more than any other passage that I know in the, in the, in the scriptures, teaches us that when it comes to a transformed life, when it comes to a life encountering with God and a transformed life, God's way is such that he has to wrestle us into a transformed life and not comfort us into a transformed life. Before I go on, I just want to know, does that resonate with anybody? Say amen. It does? Okay. Where does Jacob begin to turn that this is God? Where do the blinders come off and Jacob begin to realize that this is, he's in the presence of God and he starts to cling to him and he starts to say, God, I don't want to lose you. It happens in verse 25. What happens in verse 25? Jacob is wrestling God all night and God comes and the Hebrew word is touched and it's not, you know, God smash, you know, it got, yeah, because it's merely God, ding. God comes to Jacob and God, an enormous pain. His leg goes paralyzed. And here's what Jacob is doing. The whole night, he's been wrestling with God to get away because this mysterious figure is, is, is grabbing a hold of him all night long. And Jacob finally realizes, oh, this is God. Where does that realization come? When he, ding, it realizes this being is an enormous, powerful being who has withheld his power. And, ding, and his leg goes paralyzed. And he changes and says wrestling because as soon as he realizes that it's God, and even though he's in tremendous pain, he says, I will not let you go. I will cling to you. You are all that I have. When does that change happen? When does that penny drop? At the moment of. At the moment of. You see the picture? When Jacob is paralyzed, he's not holding on to God because, you know, he's going to fall otherwise. When he's holding on to God and God touches him, Jacob says, now all the more I know who you are and I will not let you go until you bless me. The Bible says, you guys, we have a God who says, I want to bless you and I want to change your life. 
I, I want to I wake you up to who you are. I want to wake you up to realizing who I am. But the way that I'm going to do that is not through comforting you into it, but the way I do that in your life is I'm going to wrestle you into a changed life. As I thought about this, I thought about this whole week. I'm like, God, why? why? You know, I, I have a lot of conversations. Why do you do that? Why do you have to do that? Why can't you just, you know, show up and turn on the lights and say, I'm God? Why did God just do that to Jacob? Why do God just going to give him information? Jacob, check this out. I'm God. You're a liar. You're a deceiver. You're a manipulator. You are headed down a path where it's going to destroy your life and destroy other relationships. Now stop it. Why does God come in the dark? Why does God wrestle with him? Why does God maim him? Why does God do that? And then when one of those moments, you know, I sat there and I'm a parent now. Because <laughs> a lot of times I see Parker. Parker's a wonderful child. He's a wonderful child. He's a wonderful child. Did I mention that he's wonderful? He's a wonderful child. But he's naughty. He's getting to be four and a half, five. And I see things in him where he lacks wisdom where he lacks humility, and where he lacks love. And then sometimes I, I look at him, and I go, oh, Parker, sit down. Let me talk to you about wisdom. <laughs> Let me talk to you about humility, from the word humble. Let me talk to you about, I want to sit there, and I want to give him information. Here's the reason why, because deep down inside, as a parent, I go, I want to protect you, Parker, because you with lack of wisdom, lack of humility, lack of love. That's going to create problems in your life, and I don't want you to. And then realization that oftentimes the problems caused by our lack of humility, problems caused by our lack of love, our lack of wisdom, are oftentimes the only things that will teach that child. Humility, wisdom, and love. I wish God could come and say, hey, hey, stop it. Let me show you the trajectory of your life. See the unwise, foolish things you're doing? Now let me tell you what's going to happen. Stop it. We won't learn. You know why? Because the problems caused by our lack of humility, wisdom, and love are the only things that will teach us to be wiser, humble, more loving people. Another way to put it, none of us in years learned about our flaws by being told your mother's been telling you all your life. You know how we learn? We have to be shown. And God comes along and he says, I love you just the way you are. But I love you too much to let you stay the way you are. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wrestle you into a transformed life, child. But I want the comfort. You'll never learn then. You'll never wrestle, but that's pain. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. But that hurt. Uh, I know, I know, I know. But that's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I have my limp. Do you? Maybe over lunch we go, wait, what's your limp? What's your wound? And as you talk over lunch, here's where we're coming next week. Check this out. Think about this. This is why you and I could stand here today and say, I have my limp, I have my wounds, but I thank God that these are wounds and these are limp of grace. Do you know why? First of all, listen to Jacob. 
What he got was much less than what he deserved. What he got was much less than what he deserved. Think about it. Manipulator, conniver, liar. He cheats his brother out, lives his whole life deceiving. And what he got was wound of grace because what he got was much less than what he deserved. Uh, can we just all be real here this morning? If we got what we deserved for the foolish, dumb, unwise, unloving things that we've done, where would we be today? Amen? I mean, this isn't just, this isn't great insight. Every single one of us sitting here going, the wound that I have and the limp that I have for being that, doing that, much less than what I deserved. Amen? But here's another reason why it's a wound of grace. It was given to Jacob just to wake him up, not to destroy him. (sighs) He realizes, ding, oh my gosh. I've been wrestling with this figure. And he just went, ding, and I've lost all power. And he realizes he had that power, but he held back. Why? I love Jesus. Because centuries later, the ultimate Jacob shows up. And he did everything right. He obeyed God perfectly. And yet God says to this Jacob, I am not going to hold back, but I am going to bring the full weight of my justice, full weight of my justice on you for our Deceiving. For our conniving, for our manipulating, for our lives, God doesn't hold back. But the Jacob that comes centuries later, God unleashes his justice on that Jacob. Why? So that the wounds that we have today are wounds just to wake us up, not to destroy us. The wounds that I have today is wounds of a friend that says, I'm just doing an intervention on someone that I love. I have my limp. Do you? If you've encountered God, you've got to have some. You've got to have some. Here's how I want to end today's service, you know. Uh, Anybody out there thinking, I've been wrestling God, and then you realize now that, oh my gosh, he's been wrestling me. I thought it was about that issue, and I'm so angry at you, I'm so mad at you, and I just can't figure that out, and you've been, and you realize, oh man, God's been Wrestling me. He's a great hold of me. We want to pray for each other. If that's you, will you will you just stand up? I want to pray together. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Come on, be honest. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Yeah, I'm talking to you. You've been up at God. You yeah, at God. You need to stand. You stand up this morning. Come on, be honest. First step towards transformation: utter, total honesty. Stand up. Maybe we all could go out lunch afterwards and share about our limp, eh? <laughs> share about our wound. Here's what I want to do. For those of you that are standing around these guys or sitting around these guys, you don't have to stand. Just, just kind of put your hand towards them. Andy, you can come on up. We'll, we'll be up here together. All right, man? I know. What's your limp? You got, you got, you got, yeah, okay. All right, you tell me. Okay. 
And for those of you that are standing, thank you for encouraging me this morning to know that I'm not alone on this journey. And for those of you that are standing, uh, I want to pray for you and I want to pray with you. And the rest of you, can you just go ahead and just agree with this prayer and, and just, just love on your brother, love on your sister. And of course, if you know that person, you came to church with that person, you, you take them out to lunch and just pray for them and talk to them. God, we, we, we come this morning and uh, it, is, it is our desire. No, God, I, I want to speak for me. It's my, my desire. God, I've been fighting you. I've been fighting you. I've been fighting you. And, and, and I realize that, that you, because you love me, because you care enough for me, God, in love, you've been pursuing me. You've been pursuing me. And God, I pray for my brothers and my sisters here and, 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 the, and the limp and the wounds. For some of us, it's, it's, it's after, the, after the tap. For some of us, we are being touched, tapped. We are, and God, we're just hurt. We're, we're crippled. We're maimed. We feel angry. We're mad. We're upset, God, and we just can't figure it out. And we have lots of questions. And I thank you that you are a God who says, come on, bring it on. It's okay. It's okay. But you're a God who loves us too much to so let us stay where we're at. And you're saying, child, I want to do something in your life. And I am, I am, see. So I pray for clarity. I pray, Holy Spirit, for clarity. Will, will you do that? Will you do that right now, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, wherever we are, wherever we are, and whatever that might be, God, speak truth, speak truth, speak life, breathe life, speak truth, God, into us, Jesus. We stand in utter desperation because we need you. We cry out like the disciples. If not you, where are we going to go? Who are we to go to? We have no place to go. We have no other place to go. None. You're it. You're it. You're it. So God, I pray for every single one of us standing here today. I just pray for clarity. I pray for courage. I pray for faith that we would be able to see beyond the cloud. And just as Jacob did, that we would be able to see the face of God. We will be able to see the face of God. Let's all stand together and worship team. If you guys could come on up, let's all stand together this morning as we. Today's sermon will feel somewhat incomplete, and it is.
We finish the story next Sunday as we see Jesus prominently and his gospel coming through. You hang in there, child of God. I'll finish this story next Sunday as we see clearly who Jesus is. sing this together as our response and our prayer. Church, sit down just for a second. Don't worry, I'm going to dismiss you guys. Kevin and Fred, will you guys come on up? Kevin and Fred, come on up. Are they still here? Yes, come on up, come on up. Um, you guys can find out more for yourself, but uh, come on, come on up, come on up. Kevin and, and Fred are, are uh, making an incredibly courageous, bold decision. Um, come on all over. They, they, they are going to be. Six months, right? And what's the name of the organization? Uh, Wayside. Wayside. Wayside okay. Wayside Mission. Okay. And you're going to be there for six months. And Minus yeah. two days. Minus two days. Minus two days. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're too smart for your own good. You know that? And that's why you big pain in the rear end to me, you know? Um, um, I want to pray for these guys. Um, they, they have made this decision and uh, out of just unbelievable community that surrounded them and men and women from this church that have loved both Fred and Kevin. Uh, they're doing this. And, and church, uh, they're not alone in this, are they? No. No, we're in this together. And so I want to pray for you. I pray for you. And I want you to just join me. God, we pray for Kevin and for Fred. Uh, I thank you for their wounds and I thank you for their limb. Um, And we could honestly say here together as brothers of Christ that that we are with them and sisters of Christ, we are with them. And God, I know that the journey uh, uh, requires you and your spirit. And the journey is going to require this church community and the men and women of this body to be their encouragement, to be their source of strength, to be their source of friendship. So, Lord, um, as they're going to be leaving soon for six months, uh, minus two days, we send them, Father, as a church, with our commitment to pray, with our commitment to visit, with our commitment to, to share, with our commitment to to be their community, be their church family, the household of God. We know that they're going to be in good hands, not because of the men and women who work there, but we know they're going to be in good hands because you, God, go with us. You journey with us. You walk with us. 
and your ever-present help and presence is always before us. So we rest our hope in that. We pray for Fred. We pray for Kevin. In Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday, you guys. Uh, Please encourage Kevin and Fred before you leave. Whether you know them or not, God will go with you. Take care, guys. Have a great week.